Hello, everybody. Welcome to your Art Gallery of Ontario, and I've said it before, and I'll keep saying it. The AGO comes alive when you come. Think about art, talk about art, listen to people talk about art. Uh, you bring what we do into this world. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing your time with us. I'm Matthew Teitelbaum, uh, the Michael and Sonia Kerner Director of the Art Gallery of Ontario, and we're thrilled that you're here to help us celebrate the announcement of the fourth winner of the Iskowitz Prize at the AGO, Brian Jungen. Now, before you do your math, okay, before you do your math, you're, some of you are thinking already, okay, fourth prize, but I thought it just celebrated its anniversary and all of that, so I just want to say fourth prize of the Iskowitz Prize at the AGO, but of course for more than 20 years the Iskowitz Prize has been a huge part of the Toronto landscape. What's been great about our partnership with the Iskowitz Foundation is that we've been able to add, we hope, a public to this great benefaction from Gershon Iskowitz, a profile for a prize that truly believes in creating profiles for artists, in part because what we bring to the equa equation is the opportunity to have a public exhibition in our space. And we are pleased that in this last 12 months, we've had exhibitions of Mark Lewis and Francois Sullivan, winners of the last two Iskowitz Prizes. We're thrilled that we're partnering with UCOM in Montreal uh, to present the work of the 2009 winner, Sherry Boyle, uh, which will be at, on view at the AGO this fall and of course to plan for the winner of this year's Iskowitz Prize. It's already been announced, right? Like he's actually giving a lecture and it's the same guy? Okay, so Brian Jungen's exhibition, which we will uh, present here in 2011, in other words, in the next 12 or 14 months. And uh, Brian, when I went up to him and said, have you already started talking to David and Michelle and, and uh, Sophie and Michael and the people in the Modern and Contemporary Department about what you want to do, he had a very mischievous look in his eye and said, yeah, I've got some ideas. And uh, I wanted you to know that when an artist says to a museum director, I've got some ideas, you have an equal combination of uh, ecstatic pleasure and trepidation in the highest degree. But apparently, Brian does have some exciting ideas and we're thrilled to be able to host his exhibition as it comes up. So before we uh, turn over to Brian, I'm gonna ask Jay Smith, uh, chair of the Iskwitz Foundation and David Mose to uh, say a few things. David, of course, is our curator of modern and contemporary art. Um, so Jay Smith's gonna come up and in a way, Jay doesn't need an introduction because there isn't anybody here whose lives in one way haven't been enriched by Jay and Laura's uh, contributions uh, to the contemporary art scene in Toronto. And I have to say to Jay that Toronto wouldn't be the same without you, and we're thrilled that you brought to us the idea of the Iskowitz Prize at the AGO. Jay Smith. If uh, Matthew has one fault, uh, he's probably way too generous. Um, but thank you, Matthew. Um, I think it was at a basketball game that we were at, and uh, I've been a trustee of the Iskowitz Foundation for a while. And I said, well, why don't we just bring the Iskowitz Prize into the AGO? We'll fund the thing, we'll do the thing, but um, it would be nice to have a show for the prize winner to make it much more um, visible than a little foundation. And, you know, Matthew said in his normal fashion, I'll get back to you. And in fact, he did get back to me, and that sort of started the prize, the uh, Iskowitz Prize at the AGO. And in fact, since the Minister of Culture cited Brian as the award winner in the Iskowitz Foundation, how great it was for the country, um, which isn't a normal sort of line coming from um, the government, uh, it's been terrific to have this association. Matthew and the AGO have been incredible. A friend once said a partnership is no-ship, and that's been many people's experience. In this case, it's been a brilliant, beautiful, wonderful ship where it's done exactly what we wanted to do. Uh, Gershon was an artist, a painter, lived on Spadina Avenue, 
um, Holocaust survivor, didn't have any family, and so left his legacy to create the Iskowitz Foundation. And through that, um, we've now managed to award, uh, through time, 24 prizes, $25,000 each, no tax, because you can't apply for it. It's simply given to you. As a kid, I remember John Bears for Tipton showing up at people's doors with a check, you know, for people. Here's a check. You can just have it. Um, what's unique about the prize, you don't apply, so there are no losers. There are some prizes here where there are four people shortlisted, so I thought, oh, there's one winner and three losers. Uh, there's never a loser with the Iskowitz Prize. There's just one winner. And uh, it's terrific because, you know, when we have outside jurors come in to try and decide, there are really no criteria, you know, and they say, well, what's the criteria? Well, there's no real criteria. So we go from basically um, people mid-career to people late-career to more recently um, people earlier in their careers. And the great thing about that is um, we can seek to find someone who's very important at a particular moment in time. So it gave us great pleasure this year to award the prize to Brian Youngen, who I think is very special and sort of at the peak of being able to break out internationally, and his voice is, is certainly recognized internationally as one of the great um, artists of this generation. Um, but I'd like to invite David Most to come up here, who in fact will speak about Brian. Um, David just led a very successful group to New York, and I was talking to one of them who didn't know David and said, well, David is very articulate and likable. And I think that pretty well sums up David. Uh, brilliant with a great personality. So uh, David, I turn it over to you. Well, I think uh, Jay shares that same fault as Matthew, as uh, erring definitely on the side uh, of generosity. So it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome you uh, to, I think, a great evening here. Like Jay, I wear two hats this evening, one as an Iskowitz uh, board member, and then one as uh, someone close to the Art Gallery of Ontario. I have to say, uh, the first time that I encountered a work of Brian Youngen's was in a private collection in a home in Ottawa. Uh, I wasn't living here, I was living in the States at the time, uh, about 10, 11 years ago. And it was an experience that as a curator one hopes for, maybe sometimes dreams of, but rarely encounters. And so I was stopped in my tracks, uh, sort of in a room with other objects, and there was conversation in that room, and my mind just kept coming back. Uh, to this one object, which was uh, a prototype sculpture of Brian's. Uh, sculpture ingeniously made from Nike Air Jordan running shoes, but that uh, was in the form of, uh, of a mask, uh, um, a native Canadian West Coast mask. And, you know, that work really stuck with me, and as I uh, moved back to Canada and came to the AGO uh, a little more than five years ago. Uh, Brian was an artist that was very present and prominent in my thinking. So it's, uh, it's really a great uh, pleasure and a privilege I'm looking forward to to be able to work with Brian on uh, a presentation of his work associated with the Eskowitz Prize here at the AGO that uh, should happen within about a year. So Brian uh, is an artist that I think is, is really cresting um, an absolutely deserved wave of attention, uh, early maturity. It's an artist who uh, has already received a lot of museum attention. The Vancouver Art Gallery in 2005 organized a survey exhibition that traveled uh, for two years, seen at the Musée d'Art Contemporain in Montreal then the Villa Stuck in Munich, and uh, the Wit de Wit in Rotterdam, so a Canadian uh, crossing the ocean. And currently, uh, his work is the subject of 
a substantial exhibition at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., a Smithsonian uh, institution, and he's the first living artist to receive a solo exhibition at that uh, institution. It's on view um, until August 2010, so if you're in D.C., I urge you to see uh, that exhibition. And it's just received uh, a six-page feature in the May issue of Art in America, and um, really comprehensive, thoughtful treatment um, by Deborah Kuan. So I thought, um, you know, rather, we have Brian here tonight to speak about his work. It's a great uh, privilege because I think it's not something that too often happens. And, you know, rather than me uh, speak about his work, I thought that I would just read a little bit of interpretation that you can get if you venture uh, into our historical Canadian galleries where there is a part of an exhibition that is on view that is put on by five MFA students from the Ontario College of Art and Design who uh, part of the program involves them collaborating with Michelle Jakes, a curator in the modern and contemporary department, to conceive an exhibition. Their exhibition is called You Are Here because some of those students are uh, Aboriginal Canadians, uh, like Brian. Uh, they selected five First Nations artists, work by five artists, and have positioned them as interventions, as interruptions or disruptions within the existing displays. And you have to go from the fifth floor of the Contemporary Tower, uh, where there's a late 19th century uh, mask, to, as I said, the historical Canadian galleries. And I'll just read the interpretation of uh, our prototype sculpture, like the one I described first encountering 10 years ago. Uh, this is curated and written by Ebony Haynes, Jordan McInnes, Suzanne Morissette, Sarah Monroe, and Lisa Myers, and of Prototype for New Understanding Number 6, uh, dating from 1999. They write, and I think quite beautifully, uh, provide a point of entry into Brian's work. By slicing and reassembling Nike Air Jordans, Brian Jungen creates a sculptural interpretation of a West Coast Haida mask that merges ideas of contemporary commodity with traditional culture. While Jungen's sculpture is a, woody, is a witty exploration of his cross-cultural positioning as an artist with First Nations ancestry living in an urban setting, its placement in this gallery emphasizes the historical origins of his visual language. So I think, uh, a beautiful jumping off point to welcome Brian Jungen up here to speak about his work. And I hope that you'll join me in doing that. And at the end of his presentation, there will be time for questions. Brian Jungen. Thanks, everybody. Um, David, that was very nice. I'm going to sit down here and show some images and uh, talk about my work without destroying the microphone. Um, I was very honored to be part of this group of artists who received this award. And uh, when Jay phoned to tell me that I would be this year's recipient, I was very excited, so I wanted to do some background research into Mr. Iskovitz and um, see possibly if there's any parallels with my work at some point. So that made me look at some very old work of mine, which uh, I managed to actually have images of, including these drawings that I made fresh out of art school, which I had basically had no money. and. Uh, did a lot of drawings based on my ideas of who I was as a Native person, <coughs> but also working, trying to work within 
a contemporary or a urban environment. Sorry, I'm just getting over a cold. But I didn't really find any other parallels with my work in Mr. Escovitz. <laughs> but I thought it would be a good place to start. So this, this afternoon, I had opportunity to check out the, a bit of the, the grad show over at OCA. And uh, it led me to thinking about how art school really was kind of the, I guess, major influence of trying to find my voice and how to figure out how to speak about identity, and especially a fractured identity like being half First Nations. So that, I think this is working. So from a, a lot of these drawings that I was doing right out of art school, um, led initially to discoveries of like a lot of things about my identity. And these works were just made to be temporary. They were, they were basically wheat posted up the downtown east side in Vancouver where I had my studio. A lot of it was just scenic things, stuff I was trying to find a visual language for. And uh, was never really meant to be permanent. And it was all pretty much drawing and painting. And uh, a lot of this doesn't exist anymore except in photographs. So, and I rarely talk about this work because it, although I guess it was influential to my later sculptural work, I never really knew how to place it within my later practice. A lot of this work was very cartoonish. It was, it was quite immediate, and uh, it really led me to think that playing around with these uh, ideas of identity, I was more curious to see what type of, uh, how that identity is, is uh, kind of manufactured, not just by uh, myself or through culture, but through individuals and through mass media. So this, this work is going back to 1995, I guess. A lot of it was pretty explicit, pretty silly. And uh, it led me to kind of find out how I could use this type of imagery or these, these stereotypes and racist imagery in, in a more kind of a salient way, I guess. So it led to me doing these kind of, uh, hang on, I'm just going to jump forward a bit, to doing these kind of surveys in public and um, asking people to draw their versions of native art and First Nations culture. And uh, so I collected these images, and they were later produced on as installations in gallery walls, mainly in uh, BC and Alberta at first. And uh, this project was also done in, here in Toronto, YYZ, uh, about 10, 10 years ago. Um, I guess the significance of this work is that I started to work outside of like a two-dimensional way by painting these on the wall so large considering the gallery space and the environment and uh, figuring out how to actually incorporate more of the presence in, in an installation. I'd never made any objects before so it was really a kind of a combination of fluke and opportunity to be at the BAMP Center and uh, where I continued this kind of wall survey project, which took about a week to do, and then I had six more weeks to figure out what else to do at the BAMP Center. So I was curious about making objects, but really had no background in it and had very little confidence in actually 
making something. So I was uh, spending some time in New York at the time, so I came across Nike Town and was very kind of, I guess, partly shocked about how much they were glorifying their products in a, this kind of historical manner. It's very similar to a museum display. So that pretty much led to making the first of the, of the Nike work at the Banff Center. And I discovered a whole new way of working, which pretty much I have continued doing so much that I don't really draw anymore. It's pretty much has receded right to into my past. So it was really when I started making this work through opportunities from the Canada Council and uh, support in Vancouver that I really felt like I could finally try to express these feelings I had about being kind of cross-cultural. Um, and it opened up a way for me of working that I've pretty much have adopted into all different aspects of making objects, from large-scale installations to smaller works such as this. Uh, I think I have a lot of images, so... I'm just going to jump ahead a bit. <laughs> I think people are familiar with this work. Um, this is kind of a chronological presentation, but showing my drawings kind of threw me off a bit. So uh, this, I'm going to show some installation shots of some works that, uh, such as this piece, which is where I started working on a more site-specific method of uh, being invited to museums and uh, exhibition spaces that were kind of quite large. People would, curators wanted me to kind of react with the space or have some sort of... Uh, um, interaction with the gallery space. So this is a piece I made in Harlem, which is a basketball court that I made out of sweatshop tables, as the, the space was formerly a manufacturing center. Um, unfortunately, there's not very good images of that show. And uh, this was an early work from YYZ, actually. And uh, it was my first time in Toronto. I think it's 1999 or 2000. And it's kind of a good example of how I uh, decide to use materials. I was very fascinated with these chairs um, for quite a while. What had uh, wanted to really test or try out different ways of using them. Uh, this is another piece from Toronto. But I wasn't really kind of satisfied or like, I had no feel, sense of, uh, I had resolved a use for the, for the material until I spent some time in Vancouver and went to go videotape the last killer whale at the aquarium. Um, I have a kind of curious interest in the environments that humans make for animals. I have since I was a kid, and I used to make kind of environments for our, our livestock. Um, but I was spending time at the aquarium, and I came across these artifacts of uh, the whaling industry on the West Coast. So certain things just kind of fell into place, and I built this first whale skeleton at the ore gallery, which was a, um, I guess, early installation 
project, the building work on site. So there's a series of this work. And some work I just don't really want to talk about because it's a bit involved with background and whatnot. Um, one of my favorite pieces that doesn't exist anymore is this project I worked on in Montreal with the Montreal SPCA at the Darling Foundry, where again I was asked to kind of create an environment. This time I wanted to turn the space over to the SPCA so they could use it as an animal adoption annex somewhat. So taking the kind of materials that you would usually associate with a pet store, like cat, pet, animal furniture, I built kind of a version of Safdie's uh, habitat and then turned it over to the SPCA and so they could have these cats live there and find new homes, which I felt was kind of a gesture towards Safdie's original social intent for his housing project. There's some terribly cute photos. Uh, oh, I, f I forgot this was in here. This is a, a similar project I did in Edmonton using IKEA furniture. I, I was looking for materials in Edmonton and there was a big pet superstore next to the IKEA. So, to me, it was funny that you could go and buy a pet, like furniture. So I created this kind of floating, fantastic birdhouse environment for, spare, for these little finches that were uh, purchased next door at the pet store. And it was a show about kind of uh, modern architecture. And again, it was pretty much um, turning the space over and giving it another use to some extent. Uh, this is kind of going in a totally different direction, but um, this is one of my favorite pieces that was made on location at the Tate Modern in London. It was part of a series I was involved in of um, artists who were asked to come and make something or have a... a installation in a new exhibition space that they opened, which was formerly a gift shop. Um, so it had this strange street profile like the other galleries didn't have. So I wanted to actually make something in the space and have that to be part of the experience of the show. Um, but while I was working on the show, I had... Uh, a lot of different ideas, and like Matthew suggests, that's something museums don't really like. Um, if you have one idea and you can build it in your studio and ship it to the museum, then I think that's what a lot of museums pray for. <laughs> but this piece, it was based on a poem that was, was actually a song that was... Um, written by this Irish socialist named Jim Carroll, who wrote the poem while on a train at Waterloo Station, which was very close to the Tate Modern. So I really wanted to make some sort of reference to this because I thought the poem was quite a lovely piece of poetry. And, and then when I found that it was the official song of the Labour Party until Tony Blair had it removed, it made even more sense. It's kind of a call to arms, a call to, you know, uh, uh, for union rights. So this piece is made out of thousands of pieces of red clothes that were collected around London. Um, and it's a flag which was meant to be flown at the on the tower of Tate Modern. Unfortunately, it turned out to be about 300 pounds. And <laughs> I just, it was impossible. And so we actually hung it in this gallery space that it was made in. And this 
is a photo of it as it's currently being shown in Washington, D.C. Thanks. I think I'll skip through these, too. Um, when I started making the, the Nike work, a lot, that work opened a lot of discussion, not just within contemporary art, but within popular culture as well. There was a lot of coverage of that work. And including a lot of coverage from like sports culture, which was very unusual for me because I'd never really considered that side of the use of materials. As, as much as I considered, I guess, the kind of identity and the historical aspect that I was going after with the reference to the coastal masks. But I think after reading a lot about how the work was being covered by the sports media, I became more interested, I guess, in seeing how to take sports materials in, that, in a similar direction. So these, these works are carvings into bats that are, they're actually text works. They have, they're my own versions of, uh, sorry, some of these are big files. They're kind of labor union slogans that I made up based on a lot of BC history. And they just mirrored and then carved into the bats, like a staff or a small totem. Or... But this work got me interested in a lot of using a lot of sports gear, especially baseball, because I was showing a lot of work in the, in the US. So these works are based on a lot of things, including Japanese armor. Uh, traditional regalia and dress from Native Americans, as well as um, like the pageantry, I guess, of sports, sports culture. Some uh, more work with baseball stuff. This was for a larger installation involving a sound and movement, which, oh, I do have images, so. So these, these skulls, I actually started collecting these because I, I have a dog and I have a lot of friends with dogs and I would find these balls in parks and uh, started collecting them because people would write stuff on them. So as you can see in this one, um, and I became interested in using it as a material and found that taking it apart was, it, they actually become quite flexible and you can make different things with them. And at the time I was really interested in using furniture as well, so I made these saddles using these kind of outrageous uh, vibrating chairs you can plug into your home theater system. <laughs> the things you can buy in the US, as I tell you, it's very amazing. <laughs> So these were wired into like a, two home theater systems that played like big budget American war and Western films. This is kind of my uh, piece about American manifest destiny. And so this, the little, there was little speakers that were hiding inside of the, the baseball skulls. And then these, the motors from the chairs I kept and I just stuck them inside the saddles so these things moved around, crashed into each other, and I don't think I'll do another kinetic piece again. Uh, yeah, so this is part of the other work I was making with furniture. This piece was made for my show at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Um, 
I wanted to make, well, I, I learned how to make a teepee a few years ago. Um, my, a couple of my cousins have them set up usually all summer. So I wanted to make my own version of one. It never really found a, my kind of suitable material until I spent some time in a furniture store and realized that all these sofas in there were basically like cattle. And so I wanted to use the sofas as, as a source material. So when I told the Vancouver Art Gallery I had like a good idea for installation, they got on board right away. And I had them go to the brick and buy about 15 of these kind of nice deluxe leather sofas, which is pretty funny because like, when I, I find like whenever folks in my family want to you know, splurge or you know, they get into, buy some money, they all, everyone buys the leather sofa. And it, it seemed like this really good kind of example, especially in Indian country, that people really like their leather sofas. So I wanted to reference that somehow. Um, so I basically worked with a crew and we skinned these sofas <laughs> and used the wood to make these poles and then wrapped it in this, this uh, Italian leather. I think we're having a bit of a problem with this image. All right, sorry about that. Um, I, I'm gonna show some works that I haven't really shown before. These are kind of an unusual series. In a way, it's, these are works that are based on my own work and how my work started to become part of art history, and I wanted to make some sort of break with this work that I was making, which I felt was very important to me, the prototype work. Um, but I wanted to have a break with that. And when I finished the project, I made 23 of them, I made a short series of kind of my versions of them which are made out of punching bags and boxing gloves. And they're made in a way for me to kind of like break from that and like, they're meant for people to hit. Like, they're also meant to touch because the, the Nike work is usually shown behind glass and it's not, it's become a rarefied art object. Whereas these works are meant to be more interactive. I don't think we're going forward. There we go. So this was kind of like a, a way for me to kind of finish the project. I don't make the, the Nike prototypes anymore. I did kind of return to uh, use of the sports material for another show when I was w working on a, looking at a lot of Canadian uh, native, non-native history and looking at reserve lands. I started to spend a lot more time on my reserve because I proposed to do a public artwork up there. Well, actually my chief and council invited me, but we had different ideas of what constituted public. Because <laughs> most, my reserve is pretty remote and most non-native folks never go there. So I wanted to make something that would be more of a, have some sort of use or for the wider kind of community in general. I'll get to more of that later. But when I was looking at a lot of the reserves in, in Metro Vancouver, I realized there was a lot of golf courses built on reserves. And to me, that seemed like like a, such a polar, such a polarizing use of land, like a government-sanctioned Indian reserves and these luxurious golf courses. 
So I made this uh, series of work which were stacked um, golf bags, which uh, I discovered in a golf superstore. And I was really kind of shocked how little I had to do to them, like, <laughs> which was kind of a relief in some respect. But I they just kind of doubled up and stacked on top of each other. And these are in the collection here at the AGO. Um, nice detail. This was also shown in the exhibition, and it's, it's uh, scale cutouts of all the reserves in Metro Vancouver that are felted and then rearranged into a map of the province. This work I made up in northern BC when I was visiting family. Uh, where I'm from, BC, it's a lot of oil and gas country. And uh, there's a lot of roads. And people carry a lot of jerry cans with them, and you kind of see them everywhere. And I've wanted to use them as um, sort of material for a while now, but I wasn't really sure what. And one of my aunties was trying to teach me how to do some beading. And I didn't really have the patience for it. But I decided to kind of take on the same sort of, I guess, uh, technique, but in reverse, rather than adding, subtracting. So these, these uh, pieces are based on poisonous and, uh, poisonous and insects and plants, where I'm from. And rather than beating, I drilled holes into the gas can, rendering it useless, but creating these really nice, uh, almost like miniature screens. Um, I think this way of working that I've been doing is uh, these big on-site installations I might be drawing to a close with that after this show. This really tested my patience. Um, I was in the, involved with the Biennale of Sydney two years ago. And I, this kind of happens to a lot of artists I've talked to. You get invited, you go out there, you get really excited about space and the possibilities. And then you, you come back to make the work and all of that resources seem to have disappeared, <laughs> especially for Biennales. But I was really fascinated with this, this island in Sydney Harbor, which had multiple histories going back to uh, the Aborigines, but had a, mostly a dark history of um, incarceration and a lot of labor and not necessarily willful labor. Um, so I had a lot of different ideas for this site, and they were narrowed down as things got more and more difficult. And working on, in a strange city on an island on the other side of the world was very uh, trying. So this work is based on constellations. Um, I was quite, I'd never been to the Southern Hemisphere, and I was quite uh, fascinated in the completely different sky. So I started to read and research and uh, find the Aboriginal Australians' versions of the constellations rather than the European ones. So these animals are made based on those constellation animals. And I decided to use luggage um, because anyone who has ever been to Australia has to travel this make this incredibly long trip there. And you arrive at the airport, and everyone's confused, and there's bags and stuff everywhere. So I wanted to somehow reference that. And so these animals, an eagle, an emu, a crocodile, a possum, and a shark, are kind of the classic uh, animals based on several different Aboriginal mythologies made from baggage. Here's um, 
quite recent work. This work, uh, these series of blankets from NFL jerseys, which are meant to be worn and kind of ceremonial, but again are kind of fragile and seen behind glass now. It's unfortunate. This work based on, again, constellations. Um, just finding out different types of uh, interpretations of the sky and figuring out how to reference that into a lot of the, the things that I've been learning from my family. But this, I think, is our final image. This is a location on the Doig River Reserve where I'm from, which is mo one of my favorite places ever. It's a, a beautiful meadow, and this is in the summer when it's in full bloom. And this is where I wanted to make my um, permanent public artwork for my band, which I proposed to make a radio tower a couple years ago, not only to give voice to the community, but to help people get involved in broadcasting. So this project has been active, let's say, for a couple of years, but it's been very difficult because after presenting this idea to my chief and counsel, they asked me how many jobs it would create, and I said two. And <laughs> how much it would cost, and I said I had funding, and it, that's not a problem. And the third question is, who listens to radio? <laughs> and I couldn't answer. So, so right now, we're trying to find out wh whether or not we can partner with a larger broadcaster, or Oh, because everyone up there listens to satellite radio. It's just the, the new format. And there's no way that we could get our station on Sirius satellite. So right now, we're th it's the project is kind of on hold, but it's hopefully going to be some sort of tower or structure. Um, but possibly for cell phones. <laughs> for cell phones. <laughs> because there's no cell phone coverage up there. So that's my band's solution to <laughs> a public artwork, <laughs> which got me thinking, in a way, it's like a, a, a cell phone tower is, is like something that is telling stories. I mean, it's broadcasting all these different conversations, and there's something really fascinating about that. So that's kind of what I'm re working on at present. And you're the first people to see this, this meadow. So, is there any questions? Okay, if anybody has a question. Hi, Brian. Um, you were at Bath. And that's when you started working with the masks. Could you go through a bit more detail of how, how that happened when you started? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Masks? Yeah, I was a bit kind of rushed because um, I didn't know how much time I had. But yeah, when I was at Banff, I decided to go there. I got my first Canada Council grant. And it was based on the drawings and the kind of drawing survey project that I was working on. So like I said, I did that when I first got there. Um, but I was very frustrated with drawing. So I think the real idea for that work came when I was in New York a couple months before, when I saw Nike Town. And the same day that I saw the, the very staid and old exhibits at the Museum of Natural History. And this is before the National Museum of American Indian existed. So there was a very uh, conventional representation of uh, Native Americans. And 
when I saw that and then I saw how, I guess, the you know, commercial private sectors treating their products, putting them in their own museums, it led me to think of trying to reinterpret objects in, ex with, uh, in exhibitions, in museum context. And I was also really impressed by the design of, I guess, the Jordan sneakers. They, I, I remember when they came out when I was in high school. And they are unique because they have their own kind of collector base. Like they're a product that is sought after. People collect them like artwork, sit on them, and then sell them when that, when that style becomes uh, you can't buy it in the stores anymore. So really, the BAMP Center gave me the opportunity to um, try out new stuff. I, like I said, I'd never made any objects before, so when I took them apart, I just really pinned them together. And I think maybe it's from Vancouver, but my initial impulse was just, just to take photographs of them. And I think that's because in Vancouver, photography was so dominant for so long. But I'm not a very good photographer, so I decided to actually go in and actually figure out how these things are made. And really, that's kind of how I'd established like a, a visual way of thinking with materials. So. Any other questions? I have a question regarding uh, your process. I'm just curious, when you're sitting in front of all this material, um, is it you by yourself with scissors and a needle, or what's the process of when you're sitting in front of all your equipment? How do you take, what's your first step into deciding how this construction is going to be made? Well, well it kind of, I guess it's a multi-stage thing. I always look at objects I see everywhere. I don't really like shopping, but I shop for a very different reason, I think, than a lot of people. Sometimes it's more of an idea that I have that is what I want to communicate, and other times it's just a really formal investigation with materials. Like, that's how my interest with the chair started, stacking chairs, was I was very fascinated because I was seeing them all over the world. And I thought it would be, I thought they had some really beautiful lines in them and that they could come apart in many different ways. But I tried out many different things before I kind of resolved, I guess, a use for them in my head. So. But I work, I do work with assistants for some projects because for just for time and ex constraints like working on multiple projects at the same time and stuff. Um, what was the uh, sound coming out of the baseball skulls? Oh, that, I think there was about seven or eight big budget Hollywood films. So they were just being played, the films in their entirety. So there was two DVD players with two separate home theater sound systems. So let's say like um, Platoon was playing on over top of like uh, uh, Unforgiven or something. So it was this cacophonous sound of helicopters and horses and guns and and we fed it through an app to really make the saddles move around and almost destroy each other. And it's in a concrete exhibition space. Um, and it, unfortunately, it drove the people crazy who worked in the gallery. <laughs> so they had, to, they had to shut it off whenever people weren't there. And then it was very unpleasant.
What has Nike's reaction been to your work? Have they given you uh, a response? Oh, yeah. They, they sent a letter to Catrion and Jeffries um, quite early on, which basically said, we know what you're doing. <laughs> and we want images for our archives. I don't think, they don't have a problem because it's, I'm adding value to them, you know? They, so, exactly. But um, it's funny as well because uh, that work generated a lot of attention and uh, it's been written about in like ESPN and Sports Illustrated and Michael Jordan actually read about it and he wanted one. <laughs> so <laughs> that seemed like a really good end to that project as well. Brian, um, almost all of your work is a fusion of two different things, almost every time, uh, to create a, a third meaning. But is there something else going on in that process because it's so consistent in your work? And that's the first part of my question. And are you going to be doing the same thing with the cell phone tower? <laughs> Sorry, what was the end of that, Mark? Are, are you going to be doing the same thing with the cell phone tower? Is it going to be a cell phone tower that's... That, that's uh, not like a cell phone tower, and it's, it's a fusion of two things as you, you do yeah. consistently throughout your work. Well, there is some, it's kind of like the other question about process. There's usually two different things that are happening, a material sense, and that material sensibility can arrive from the location, the museum, the site, whatnot, but then there's also maybe something historical that I want to kind of investigate as well. So that it's usually trying to find a balance between the two to create kind of the work, which is kind of a, a kind of a third person in a way, which I like how you put that. But I've had several ideas for the tower. Uh, Initially, one of my ideas was to use railway rails um, because this was one of the last stops in the expansion of the BC, the uh, Pacific Great Eastern, the BC Rail Line. But building a tower out of railway steel is not really a good idea. <laughs> so it's just very, very heavy. So, but. There's, there's other ideas. I mean, this is near the start of the Alaska Highway, and that's what really opened up the north, was built, the building of the Alaska Highway. So I want to somehow maybe reference that in some way. There was a lot of temporary beautiful trestle bridges that were built for the Alaska Highway and for the railway, which have since been replaced. But I've always thought trestle bridges are one of the most amazing engineering, uh, pieces of engineering that you'd see across North America. So perhaps it'll start there. I don't know. How many pairs of Nike running shoes and white plastic chairs have you used in your work? Oh, I stopped counting a long time ago. It's not really, it's just like having a stockpile of materials and when I need more, I, you can always find white chairs, you know, anywhere. And with the trainers, it really was, I had to wait till I found some that were really interesting because not all of them were that interesting. But. I have stuff in my studio that I've, materials I've worked with that I haven't shown yet. I haven't really been interested. Um, but in the last few years, I've been spending more time at home up north, so I've been investigating like the use of hides and furs and a lot of traditional materials because a lot of my uncles, they 
they, that's what they make artwork out of. So they want me to kind of work beside them in a way. Anyone else? Any more questions? I was actually just curious about, um, you're mentioning how a lot of, or not a lot, but a few projects of yours have now entered this realm of art history, and that they seem to exist, I guess, in a way apart from you. Like now, they have to be behind glass, and you've kind of alluded a bit to the fact that that's not, a, I mean, it's not, that wouldn't have been your first decision to put them behind glass? Actually, they were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we tried out different ways of um, exhibiting them. Because I, I wanted people to have more of a close relationship to them. Yeah. And I think that really developed after I was making the larger work, like the whale skeletons, which you can walk through. And I really, I really enjoy that type of relationship with an object. Well, you were saying as well with like the, the was it you said it, you said it was a blanket that you made with the football jerseys, and that yeah. it was meant to be worn, but unfortunately, it kind of ended up behind glass as well. So. Yeah, because the work also becomes a commodity too. Yeah. So it's even though you know, speaking about that with the use of materials, it's ironic that. Some of the work, especially when it becomes part of a public collection, it's kind of hands off. Because people are hard on artwork. Yeah, it's, yeah. Anyone who works in a museum will tell you that. It's the break stuff. They want, people want to touch things, especially if you make things out of things they're used to touching, yeah. like shoes and, you know, people want to try it on. It's like something you put on your foot that you can put on your head, so people yeah. want to try that. <laughs> Believe me, they've tried. Did, um, I guess the, the, the other part to that question then is, do you, you, I guess you, you kind of find yourself in a position that not too many people do find themselves in, where they can begin to reference their own work, their own body of work, within art historical dialogue as well? I mean, do you ever, does that ever come to your, into your mind? You're like, I guess I could, or do you make a distinct point to stay away from your previous work? I well, guess, I, I only did that really with the punching bags. And uh, to me, that was a way of kind of ending that project because I was making other work, but a lot of people, because of the, you know, the attention that the Nike work was getting, I wanted to like have a break with that, separate myself from it. So, but for me, like making work, making artwork is what I love to do, and what happens to it afterwards is largely secondary. It's it just I just kind of launch stuff out in the world, and I like to see people's interpretations of my work and. I've become, I think, more uh, a kind of a, well, let's say, when I first was making the objects, I really wanted to reference the problems of, of places like the Anthropology Museum. And that was really, I think, uh, important to me, especially to exhibit that work behind glass. But now, with the work I have been making, it's more like I want uh, more public interaction. Like the mobile piece in Australia, you could interact with it. So, and such things like a tower where you, that you could climb up and stuff. One last question, maybe? Okay. We've got, do you have time for two? Can we do two last questions? <laughs> Just don't ask me about my drawings. Who was, who was the one? <laughs> I don't like my drawings. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk just a little bit about that basketball court you made. Uh, I just. Oh just... yeah, sure. Um, we don't really have very good images of that, unfortunately, and it's it's very big. So 
he would probably just squeeze into this room. It's a very big installation. And it was, I was asked to, to make something for this uh, artist-run center in Harlem called Triple Candy that opened up about seven or eight years ago. And uh, after visiting the site uh, in the summertime, it's like on the like 127th in Amsterdam or something. And uh, the whole neighborhood, there's basketball courts everywhere. And there's tons of kids playing basketball. And then I walk into this space, and it just seemed so kind of perfect for that sort of activity. And then after kind of researching the neighborhood, and uh, I arrived at using these sweatshop tables, which I just, uh, a lot of them were kind of refurbished, but I basically just pushed them together and painted court lines on it. And on either end, there's like a, um, kind of warehouse ladders with backboards and hoops. So there's this kind of surveillance feeling of the worker and the management. Um, but of course, you could never play basketball on them without breaking your leg or anything. so. But that's one of my favorite pieces, and it has only been shown at the Guangzhou Biennale and in New York because it is so big. So it's in a storage container. Ironically. Is that it? <laughs> so, I mean, if there is another question, Brian is here, and I, I invite invite you to engage with him. I'd just like to thank you. Uh, great tour of your work, and I particularly enjoyed how you solve specific situations with making uh, incredibly inventive and almost, I think, dauntingly original work. So I'm very much looking forward to uh, what the solution might be here. So thanks again, Brian. <laughs>